thank you very much for inviting me here, and I hope that I will do justice to Pluto when it's all over. Uh, it's, I've been teaching introductory astronomy courses for about 22 years now. Yes, I don't look that old, but... Uh, uh, it's over those... Uh, during that time, what I've learned is that astronomy is an ever-changing subject. And just, just when you settle down and believe that everything's set, something changes. Something is always happening. And this is exactly what has happened again here in the case of Pluto. So what I want to do in the first 15 minutes is take you on a journey to explain why Pluto's status was changed. And I could not resist the temptation of grabbing a picture from the Disney webpage of Pluto and the six dwarfs. Well, right now, there are only four. But, oh, I'm giving away the punchline. Anyway. But something important happened to Pluto. Three years ago, when the International Astronomical Union met in Prague in the Czech Republic, Pluto was Plutoed. And now there is a new verb, to be Plutoed, right? <laughs> Demoted. Uh, so, something new you learn every day. Pluto is now a dwarf planet. And the question is, why did it happen? More to come. And the answer is yes, of course, yes. There's always more to come. So, anyway, in order to, to show you... Uh, or to understand why Pluto's status was changed, I need to talk about the structure of the solar system a little bit, and in particular to talk about how the solar system was formed. The solar system's formed from a spherical cloud of dust and gas that was spinning, and as it spun, it started to collapse into a sort of a pancake shape, and you can see a bit of that here. I'm going to show a movie in a second but you can see a bit of the pancake shape, and then the solar system started to look, the early solar system started to look a lot like a fried egg, you know, the sort of pancake shape with the center becoming the central star, the sun, and slowly but surely over time, the region near the sun sort of cleared out. We formed little rocks that are called planetesimals, and eventually they became whole planets. So the movie that I'm showing next here illustrates sort of one of the later stages in the formation of our solar system where we already sort of have a bit of a collapse and you can look down into the central part of our solar system. That central object became the sun. You notice the region clearing out here. Then we have the planets um, forming. I'll show it to you again. It's really nice. You zoom in. Notice that we have a lot of dirt here. Yeah. Dust and gas are important ingredients in the formation of planetary systems, right? And it's, it's actually nice to discover lots of other planetary systems well beyond our solar system. We won't be talking about them today. But one of the critical parts of the structure of our solar system is that here we have our sun, the central star, and we have a bunch of planets, and the planets revolve but the planets revolve about the central star. So that's an important um, thing to note. Right? Uh, nice movement here. Notice that the inner planets move faster than the outer ones. 
And we have earth here. We have no betting going on here. I'm a Quaker. But um, <laughs> we can predict who's going to win this game. Right? That's Mercury, then Venus, Earth, and Mars, uh, appropriately timed. Right? So we have this movement of planets about the central star. And then another thing we notice is if we look down on the solar system from above, we have this nice spacing of the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, where am I? I can't even see here. There's Earth in blue, then uh, Mars here, then Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. You notice that the orbits are mostly circular except for Pluto, purple orbit out there if you can barely see it. And another thing we notice from the side, you're looking at the, 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 plan, the planetary, the solar system from the side. Yes, remember that the whole system collapsed into this sort of pancake, and most of the planets orbit the sun in this pancake, except for, well, Mercury is a little bit badly behaved, a little bit tilted, but Pluto is very, Pluto's orbit is highly tilted to the rest of the solar system. So those... Um, Observations that its orbit is not as circular, right, as the others. Its orbit is tilted away from this nice pancake structure. Those two already told us something was not quite right with Pluto. Another way to look at the organization is to look. At, I'm behaving. I'm trying my best. Right, is to look at just what the, the structure of the planets themselves. We have the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, they're much smaller than the Jovian planets, the big gas planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And so we have these two groupings, terrestrial and Jovian, and then Pluto doesn't quite fit in either of these groups. So for a long time, going back maybe 15, 16 years now, I've been telling my introductory astronomy classes Pluto's not right. Something will have to be done about Pluto. And then, another thing we notice about the solar system is that some objects are in cluttered regions. Right? In the inner planets, you have Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars in nicely spaced out orbits. Nothing much between them. And then, until you get to this region here, just beyond the orbit of Mars, this is called the asteroid belt. We have a whole region of rocks in that, hundreds of thousands of them um, in this region called the asteroid belt. Then we have Jupiter, nice open spacing, not much out there between them. And then finally you get out here to Pluto. When Pluto was discovered in 1930 by Clyde, Clyde Tombaugh, um, everybody was quite happy. We discovered the ninth planet. And things were going well till. Around right about 1992, we discovered another region in our solar system called the Kuiper Belt. Kuiper Belt. I don't know if you can see it, just barely here. Here again, um, this is Jupiter's orbit now. Everything shrunk down. This is the Sun and a whole bunch of the inner planets here. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Here's Pluto's orbit, the elongated one here. And just beyond the orbit of Neptune, we, have, we discovered a whole bunch of objects, again, about 100,000 of these icy-covered rocks in what is now known as the Kuiper Belt. It was actually predicted 
way back in the, in the earlier years by Kenneth Edgeworth and Gerard Kuiper. Kuiper is here. Kuiper got the credit for it in the end. Um, but in 1992, we discovered the very first object in the Kuiper belt and discovered, ooh, Pluto's sitting in the Kuiper belt also, right? Um, these objects that are out here are now known as Kuiper belt objects. Another name for them is trans-Neptunian objects because they are beyond the orbit of Neptune, okay? So, the plot thickens, and what, as I said, the, the, the um, Kuiper belt, the asteroid belt here between Mars and Jupiter, and also the Kuiper belt, this is now stretched out, blown up, the Kuiper belt out here beyond the orbit of Neptune each contain about 100,000 objects, all cluttered together, right? So, in a sense, you can say the regions here, the asteroid belt, and also here, the Kuiper belt, have not been cleared. And I've just um, put another picture here. This is blown up so you can see the color better because the green doesn't come out so well on the screen. This region out here, way out here, is the Kuiper belt. This inner region in here is the asteroid belt. Both have not been cleared, while the orbits of the planets that sit in here are in fairly open spaces, right? So, we discovered the first object in the Kuiper belt, and then we start discovering many more. Many objects like Pluto were discovered in the Kuiper belt, and some of them look like this one, or there was Sedna, Varuna, Ixion. Uh, we even considered Pluto's largest moon, Charon and even Neptune's largest moon to be part of this Kuiper belt. Everything was fine as long as all these objects were smaller than Pluto. But I kept telling my class, something's got to change soon. Pluto doesn't belong. Pluto's going to get bumped. Okay? They didn't listen to me. Nobody listens to me anyway. So. And then... In 2003, we found this object, now known as Eris. Some of you probably have heard of it as 2003 UB313, or it was called Xena at one point. Um, now the official name is Eris. Eris is bigger than Pluto. Once Eris was discovered, let me show you pictures of Eris. Okay. Once Eris was discovered, its orbit is way, way out here in the Kuiper belt also with an elongated orbit like Pluto, um, and it has a moon of its own, dysnomia, people started asking, is this the 10th planet? And of course, that opened the door. We had to start doing something. The question is, we had already found a lot of other smaller objects in the Kuiper belt, smaller than Pluto. Now this one's bigger than Pluto. What do we do? Do we start increasing the number of planets? 10, 11, 12, and the poor kids in school, you know. <laughs> start out in September and they're 10, and maybe by May they're 15, and who knows the next year. You know, you can't tell your, you know, your, your younger siblings, yeah, there are nine planets. No, oh my gosh, it's 15. No, it could be 25. Who knows, right? This is terrifying. It was terrifying for astronomers teaching our classes, and I think... Um, we were more concerned about what would happen to the younger generations learning about the planet. So, the only organization that's approved is the International Astronomical Union. So if you go online and they tell you pay 50 bucks and we'll name a star after you, don't 
do it. Keep your money in your pocket because only the International Astronomical Union can do that. Okay? So, anyway, we were meeting in 2006 in Prague and in August, and we had to vote, right? We have to make a decision. We made a decision. Whether or not it was the right decision, we can talk about that um, shortly, but the decision that was made was to revisit the definition of what it means to be a planet. Okay, so what does it mean to be a planet? There's a purpose for this ball, yeah. We now say or a planet must orbit the sun directly, meaning that it, can, it has a nice circular, circular-like, you know, we know it's elliptical, but it's circular-like orbit about the sun. It can't be a moon, that's clear. It has to have a nearly round shape, right? Spherical looking ball. And it must have cleared the region near the orbit. Now this is, notice I'm set, I set you up earlier to, to talk about what's clear, what's not clear. And so <coughs> then the dwarf planets, this new, new definition, new term, a dwarf planet is gonna be just like a planet orbits the sun directly has a nearly round shape, but it hasn't cleared the neighborhood, right? That we were using those words, clearing the neighborhood, and it sounded like, this is in a professional astronomical you know, meeting, where people sound like you know, somebody was there with a broom cleaning the neighborhood. Okay, anyway, but the dwarf planet behaves like a planet, except that it's sitting in a part of the solar system that's cluttered, okay? Not clear. And then, of course, we have some other smaller objects, everything else, right? All the other stuff floating around. So it became clear at the meeting of the International Astronomical Union in August 2006, what we voted on, first of all, was the definition. Once we had approved the definition, we didn't have to do anything about Pluto. The decision had already been made, okay? So just a few quick things. Uh, these are images from that historic meeting. Um, this is a very famous professor, Professor Jocelyn Bell-Burnell, who discovered these objects called pulsars, holding Pluto, right? And we have a little umbrella with Pluto and Serial here to represent Ceres, the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. Yes, these are professionals. Um, and then the balloon to include all the planets. Right? And then we voted. And in fact, there was such a big uproar because people were wondering who's sweeping, who's clearing the neighborhood. This language is too simple. Um, and then we realized that there were BBC, you know, international news media in the room waiting for us to make a decision. And so we had to kind of stop the bickering and vote. And we actually made a decision that day. And I was happy to be there. Um, about 400 people who did that. So, consequences. Solar system consists of eight planets, and we actually did vote on whether or not we should call it classical planets or just plain planets, and everybody preferred just the word planet. Um, there's a new class of objects called dwarf planets. Um, there's Ceres, the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt sitting between Mars and Jupiter. There's Pluto now. Eris, which is um, now the largest uh, object in the Kuiper Belt, and now since last 
summer, June and September, we have two others, Maki Maki and Haumea. And then um, in June also, the International Astronomical Unit, Union developed this term called plutoids. Um, um, so it's like asteroids, plutoids, um, that are out here. So it's all the dwarf planets out here. I don't think it's necessary because we already have Kuiper Belt object, we already have trans-Neptunian object. But anyway, very quickly, um, and I'll stop here, um, just to show you uh, the original dwarf planets series, Pluto and its three moons, well, three moons are not part of the dwarf planets, but just Pluto. Then there's Eris, and then Maki Maki. These are Hawaiian names. And then there's Haumea. But last September, Haumea became an official um, dwarf planet. And Homi actually spins once every four hours, so it looks a lot like this. It's the most elongated one. We spent a lot, a lot of time worrying about whether or not it was sufficiently spherical. Um, it's really elongated like an egg. And then finally, I just showed this one. The largest Kuiper Belt objects now are, again, Eris, Pluto, Maki Maki, Homea. And then Ceres is an asteroid belt. But coming up in the wings, we have a whole bunch of these. And... I'll close with these, this um, slide, which shows you the future. What does the future hold? We have already discovered all of these objects in the Kuiper Belt, and they're in order of size from Eris, 2,400 kilometers in diameter, up to 400, about 400 kilometers in diameter. We have already named these Eris, Pluto, Homea, Maki Maki, Series C, Sedna has been skipped over. That's the next on the hit list. I'm sure you're going to hear about Sedna this um, summer when the International Astronomical Me uh, Union meets again in, in um, Rio de Janeiro. And then see all of these? They're coming up. They have to happen. So I think we've done the right thing by, by the students in the schools. So we have eight planets and an unknown and growing number of dwarf planets. You think the, I, the International Astronomical Union acted in a reasonable manner? Do you agree with their decision? What would you have done instead? Would you have kept increasing the number of planets, no matter what? Would you have called Pluto a dwarf planet? Should the regular planets have been called classical planets? How did I get to vote? Right? Why, do I, why am I here talking like I know what I'm saying? Hi. As a former elementary teacher now, we have to change the mnemonics. I guess we could just drop off the one related to Pluto when we were teaching the kids how to remember it. But I, I found this very interesting. Um, I have two questions. One, if I remember correctly, the, the planets were all named after uh, Roman or, or Greek gods. Yes. How do they come up with Hawaiian names for some of these? <laughs> my other question is, uh, what at Penn State in the astronomy department is available to the public? Like, do you have astronomy nights or anything or information that we can get from Penn State about viewing okay. things like that? All right, well, I'll answer the first question first. Uh, why did we get into this naming of things like Sedna and Maki Maki and Homea? Well, it turns out that the, the group, there's a big group at Caltech University um, which has been discovering a lot of these Kuiper Belt objects. And it's been led by a guy named Mike Brown. He likes this Hawaiian history. And so that's why we've been getting a lot of the, the Hawaiian and Easter Island kind of names. He's the one responsible for, for giving the names. The International Astronomical Union will approve it, but he gets first call on what the, the official name should be. Um, 
The second question is about our outreach activities. We have quite an extensive outreach program in our department, and we actually have every, every Friday night, if the weather is clear, starting around 8.30, we have an open house. So you can view, look at the telescopes through the, the roof of Davy Lab. And during the summertime, we have a major program that runs at the same time as arts festivals. So we have four days and nights of Astrofest. And we have from observing the sun to rocket launching for little kids, glittering aliens. We have lectures. We have several 3D shows. 3D movies that we, we have for people at, at, in, the, in the evenings, uh, demonstrations of light and spectra, and as I said, the, the highlight is that we have a rolling set of, of lectures, half-hour lectures given by anybody from graduate students or undergraduates to, to faculty on very simple topics of interest to the public. So yes, you just can contact us and we'll get you hooked up with one of these programs. Plus, we have a small planetarium that holds about 20 students, and we have thousands of elementary school kids come through every year in Boslow to our little planetarium. So you can make special arrangements for a school group to come. Is there a cleared neighborhood after Pluto? Beyond Pluto? Yes, I kind of I hid it in the pictures. There's a cleared cleared neighborhood beyond um, the Kuiper Belt. There's another big space, and then way, way out, about 50,000 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, there is another region that we, we hit, and it's called the Oort Cloud, where we think the comets come from. The, I should say the long-period comets come from. And this Oort Cloud is the absolute outer shell. We think it's the remnant of the object from which the solar system forms. So we have these regions where there's clearing, fluttering, mm -hmm. and there, there are these three distinct regions. There are, there's a French group and um, an American group who are trying to hunt for these Kuiper Belt objects. The key thing to remember is that none of the planets or the, the dwarf planets, or the asteroids, none of them have any light of their own. So the only way for us to see them is by, when they reflect the sun's light. Uh -huh. So if they're very small and very far away from the sun, it's very hard for us to find them. So this group of people, um, led by Mike Brown at Caltech, they have been sort of peering with trying to use the Hubble Space Telescope uh -huh. and um, to really look at the sky, look for small changes, in, in the brightnesses of objects, and that's how they've been finding them. That's why it, we are all, we're finding more and more, sure. because our, our ability to detect really faint objects is getting better. Uh -huh. We're not just using these big telescopes to discover galaxies, but to really discover objects within our own solar system. Uh -huh. yes. Well, just to address the idea of whether you acted in a reasonable manner, I don't think the nature of science is such that you could act in any other way, because Science is built on facts and, and knowledge. And just because someone made a mistake in the past doesn't mean you have to perpetrate it just because it's in a number of places. My field is microbiology, and someone got a Nobel Prize for the wrong idea. And that didn't stop them 15 years later from revising it and giving someone else a Nobel Prize. Um, so I think science has to move on. Yes. I, I certainly agree with that. Um, we have to recognize that 
the process of learning is a continual process. You never ever know everything. Right? I, it's, it's hard to tell my, you know, my girls when they were growing up that we don't know everything. You know, um, and maybe to, today something's right, and it will be different tomorrow. And this is the case here, where um, I don't think we made a mistake with Pluto. Um, in the 1800s, when Ceres, the asteroid, was first discovered, it was classified as a planet. And then as we discovered more and more of them in the asteroid belt, we realized that we couldn't get let things go out of control. So for a while, we actually did have more than nine planets. Then we demoted the these objects in the asteroid belt to minor planets. So that word has been in existence for well beyond, you know, the... The, the early 19th but century. They're not dwarfs. They're no, minor. They, yes, we call them minor planets. Now, I guess it's it's more politics why we introduced the word dwarf planet. We could very easily have continued the name minor planet, but I, th I think we just wanted to come up with something new, fresh. <laughs> you know. But yes, the minor planets have been in existence for for um, you know the night since the early 19th century. Seems to me that the word planet is really a generic name to, for anything that revolves around a, a sun or a star. And what do we call the planets we find on other stars then? If we can't use the word planet, which is so defined so restrictively. The objects we've discovered orbiting other stars, we call them planets. We call them exoplanets, extrasolar planets. So they're called planets as well. We haven't gotten the kind of detail about other solar systems yet. So we haven't been able to, you know, sort of which ones are dwarf, which ones are planets. They're all planets for now. And then maybe later we'll, we'll break it up into smaller bits. Yes. You had a question at the back? Yeah. I was uh, wondering if you, with, you had a uh, table that showed uh, planetary or dwarf planet sizes. And uh, it seemed to sort of peter out at about 410 kilometers in diameter. And I was wondering, at what, at what uh, diameter does the uh, planetoid stop being spherical or being considered planetoid? And was that dependent on the materials that are made out of versus icy versus rocky planets? No, we just, we just stopped it here. That's all. We're, we're just saying we think maybe 400 is a, is a good number to stop at. Um, you know, otherwise, how, how small does it get before you call it a small solar system object? Right, but the, so, the fact of gravity uh, it making can, sphere, spherical nature, is there a, uh, a size where gravity can, I'm sure there is, some asteroids are elongated? And, we have, um, that's a good question. We, we have lots of smaller moons of the planets that are, even smaller than 400 kilometers, so we know that they can exist in that spherical shape and get even smaller. Okay. But we just want to be reasonable here by saying, look, at least you've got to pay attention to these. These are big objects. Right? They're big and they're out there in the Kuiper Belt, and they could potentially be dwarf planets. And then once we get to this number, then we start going down to 300, maybe 200, 100. Um, these are kilometers. Right. These, these are big objects. So, uh, and uh, separate. Uh, question: Since Pluto overlaps the orbit of Neptune, yes, could it be considered just an object that hasn't been cleared yet versus a planetoid? <laughs> I mean, is there a, a chance that it will uh, 
interact with Neptune at some point and get destroyed or, or change its orbit? Uh, very good question. What, what we, uh, studies of Neptune and Pluto suggest that Pluto may have been a moon of Neptune that somehow got kicked off into its own orbit. The fact that it's the, the orbit of Pluto crosses the orbit of Neptune is evidence of that. Uh, so we think that yes, maybe Pluto might clear itself, but I think it's, there's, it's already evolved to a pretty stable state at this point. Yeah, but yes, it, it must have been a, an orb, uh, a moon of, of Neptune at some point in the past. Has anyone analyzed the composition of the dwarf planets? Are they iron-based or molten cores or anything like that? Oh boy. Um, I know we've done quite a bit of study of the atmosphere of Pluto. And it's, it has a nice thick atmosphere of methane. The others are still in the early stages where, in fact, some of the pictures that I showed you are not real pictures, direct images or, or, or photographs of these planets. It's sort of an artist image based on the light we, we see coming from these objects. So we can, we can predict the shape of the object based on how the light behaves as, as the, um, the, these dwarf planets spin. So we're even, let me, let me go back just to, I'm talking at the top of my head here, just to show you, for example, we do have a, a more close-up image of Eris now and this Nomea. We know Pluto, but Make Make and Haumea, these are artists' concepts of what they should look like um, if we got up close. Okay, um, but these are pretty good representations based on because we know a lot about how how objects should look based on how their light behaves um, as they spin. Uh, so this is pretty good, pretty close to what it should be. Right? Mm. So we're not, we're not anywhere near being really sophisticated about what these objects are. We know they're solid, uh, mostly covered with ice, because they're so far away from the sun that, that um, the ice can't melt. But they're, they're covered with some ice, and um, there might be some atmosphere, a minor, you know, very thin atmosphere, uh, around these planets. We're not sophisticated yet enough to know about internal structures. The asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt, why haven't they been cleared? And could someday, way in the future, could they be cleared? The second question is the moons that are around some of these dwarf planets. Why do they stay a moon and not become cleared by the, quote, planet or dwarf planet themselves? Okay, very good questions. Uh, let me attack the first one. The, the asteroid belt, we believe, I'm not sure if any of you attended this Saturday morning lectures yes. this, um, this semester, but uh, a professor named uh, Peter Goldrick came to talk about the dynamics of the solar system. And what he explained is that the way the solar system is set up with Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and so on, in, in their special places, they're actually in stable places. If they were to move anywhere out of those spots, they would actually get sucked in toward the sun and then eventually get burned up. So where the, where the, the current eight planets are, are very stable places. Now, let's talk about the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt is sitting right between Mars and Jupiter. We feel that an object, another planet, should have existed in that stable place between Mars and Jupiter. 
but Jupiter was exert, exerted such a monster gravitational pull on the objects in that region that it literally ripped that planetesimal apart. That possible planet was ripped into thousands and thousands of little rocks. And that's why the asteroid belt is cluttered, not a single object. The Kuiper belt is harder, right? Uh, I'm not sure why the Kuiper belt is sitting there beyond the orbit of Neptune, all in those um, pieces. It's far enough away from Jupiter, we can't blame Jupiter anymore. Um, and Uranus and Neptune are not that powerful to cause it. So it may well just have been part of the dynamics of the formation of the solar system that this structure sat there and just collected um, in, in little rocks. Beyond that, I'm not an expert, so I, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. So that's the first question, right? The second one was... So the moons, like the moons. around okay. it, how come they don't... Well, we go back to the basic question. Why, do, why would one object orbit another? Well, it has to do with the gravitational attraction, the gravitational forces between objects. If you have a fairly massive object, very dense, massive object, then it will have a very strong gravitational pull on less massive objects. So once you pull an object in with the gravitational force, if that object is, has a low enough mass, it's going to just stay there because it requires quite a big, big force to pull yourself away from this gravitational pull of the more massive one. So that's why the moons tend to, to stay where they are. If you have a very elongated orbit, like Pluto, and its moons are get really close to Neptune, maybe exactly where they're very close to where their orbits cross, then the gravitational pull of Neptune would be very strong on Pluto and may well pull away one of Pluto's moons. But you have to get close enough for that gravitational force to really get very strong. Okay. Okay. What do you call the jump that? Um humans leave up in space, and is that going to create a new belt, and uh, should we be responsible to bring our trash back, or destroy it, or, or do something? I don't know what we do with it. What, what are the plans for that? Uh, very good question. Again, uh, the answer was, well, a possible answer is in the news fairly recently. We call, we have about 70,000 pieces of space debris, space junk, orbiting the Earth, in what we call a low Earth orbit. So they orbit the Earth once every 90 minutes, like some of these spy satellites and weather satellites will do. So there are lots of these pieces of junk up there. Some of them are the remnants of um, older missions that went up. And you know, every time, I'm not sure if you, you're aware that every time we send a satellite up into space, we have a, a rocket that goes with it, right? So the rocket gets the satellite up into space above the Earth, and then the rocket part has to separate from the, from the actual satellite, right? The telescope or yeah. whatever, the weather part that we're interested in. So when it separates, it just gets left back there, you know? It doesn't naturally fall back to space. So there, there was a recent news article with, um, suggesting that we should send other rockets up to gather some of these space debris and bring them down. Most of them are sort of the same size as this ball, right? Thousands and thousands of them. Some of them are just, you know, the spare screwdriver that got dropped off by um, <laughs> one, one of the shuttle astronauts or something. So they're very small pieces of, of junk. And so we can actually 
go up there and try and pull them down or send a satellite up to kick them down back toward Earth so they're out of that stable low Earth orbit. So I believe we should take care of that. But we have to be very careful where they come down because if they come down in populated areas, I mean, even a small piece of junk like this can do a lot of damage. So that's a major concern that we're thinking of. It's really cluttering the space. Two thoughts. They may be very small, but I think in, wasn't it in the last two weeks that they had to uh, evacuate the space station because it was in danger of collision with debris? Question number one. Question number two, uh, for a naive mind like mine, um, that just the orbit of a body qualifies it as a planet or not a planet is to me just incomprehensible and uh, would it all these other things I mean Earth has the molten interior do these all have molten interiors or if they are ice as you said um, is this ice in a form of gas or solid? I mean, what makes Earth so different as a planet in comparison to its sister brother, whatever planets? The main question is you're asking um, what are, what's really, what's the internal structure of these smaller objects, like asteroids, for example. I mean, we have the asteroid belt right next to us, and those are mostly <coughs> rocks. Um, some of them are metallic. Most of them look like rocks from Earth, and we have enough information from you know, big rocks that fall from space to tell us that the asteroids are not that different from Earth. Right. We're not sure if they are differentiated, but um, where, when, when the planet is forming, everything's nice molten, sort of goop, and as it cools, we expect that the heavy stuff will be in the middle. Everything settles down. The heavy stuff like iron is in the middle of our Earth, and then the lighter elements are near the top. Um, we expect that most of the rocks, the, the asteroids, are going to be like that, right? Where the heavier stuff is in the middle. As we move farther away from the sun, out toward the Kuiper Belt, we expect that the Kuiper Belt is really asteroids covered with ice. Right, that's the main difference. Right. And it's going to be mostly dirty ice because we have a lot of soot that's traveling through the solar system. So they're not, they're not really weird objects. Right? And, and so we, we made an arbitrary distinction between the planets and the dwarf planets. And somebody 15 years from now might come up with another arbitrary distinction. Uh, I clearly, at, at the, at the um, meeting of the International <coughs> Astronomical Unit, not everyone was happy with this arbitrary definition. But the point that we, the, 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 what's really important is that we made a decision. A decision had to be made, right? I mean, I've been telling my introductory astronomy classes, something's got to be done. Something's not right. So we tried to fix it. And whether or not we fixed it in the best way possible, or maybe just in a really, you know, childish way. We tried to fix it, and that's the point. We're trying to fix it. Um, and as, as we discover more objects like Pluto, like Eris, we're going to be better at it.
But you know, we're in the baby stages right now at fixing it. No, I didn't mean to use this as a criticism in any way. And I'm quite, uh, I am aware of the distinction between asteroids and planets. But that's precisely because of the distinction when we call something a planet. There's got to be something different about it other than the orbit itself versus the asteroids because they are going at some point around too. And uh, of course there's all this wonderful magic, you know, uh, Well, we're trying. We're certainly trying to find out. That's why we're spending so much money exploring Mars. Um, exactly. Because we need to find places. In fact, we've been looking for places in the solar system that have nitrogen atmospheres, like Earth. And we found two places like that. One's a moon of uh, Saturn called Titan. And one's a moon of Neptune called um, Triton. We've been looking for places with water. And Mars is really interesting right now because even though we know that there is not a lot of water, there are not rivers of water on Mars, there are trickles still happening now. And we're looking into caves and places near, we're looking into places near crater beds where that might be cool, where the water might exist and not evaporate easily. So looking for life there, but who knows? Little Martian men might be there, but I don't think so. <laughs> Probably very microscopic organisms might still be there. We're looking at places like the moons of Jupiter, Europa, and Ganymede, which have oceans of liquid water beneath a huge crust of ice. So then we start looking at the possibility of these creatures living in the water beneath this very icy, very cold moon. In the same way that we have restructured the solar system here, we're trying to restructure the, our way of thinking about what it means to discover life. What's life? I mean, does life have to look like me? Is it going to look like E.T.? Is it going to look like the bugs in, um, I guess, what's it called? Um, Men in Black, right? <laughs> um, right? We don't know what it's like. And so we've been actually studying creatures in the deepest parts of our oceans where there's not very much light, to see what kind of creatures live there. Maybe those kinds of creatures would be better adapted to life on distant planets or moons. Do you have a question here? Yeah. Yeah, um, my question kind of goes along with you know, what the lady was asking back here. Uh, we kind of know a lot about you know, the Earth. And, and we have some ideas about the formation of the carbon and nitrogen and the other things that kind of support life as we know it here you know, on, on Earth. And do we know enough about the, the composition and the, from the evolution? You know, we're looking back on the evolution of the Earth to see, you know, how the possibility could have arrived that life was formed here. Do we know, I mean, are we, are we looking at these kind of formations and in looking at other kind of, in the evolution of these other uh, planets to see if there are, Similar kinds of, you know, carbon, nitrogen, other kind of uh, elements that are necessary for the formation of life. I mean. Yes, well, the answer is yes. We, we look at their compositions. One, we notice that there's a lot of carbon sitting all over, all over the solar system. And methane seems to be a common um, gas that's out there. Liquid methane, even in the colder, colder temperatures, 
but and then we are we are actually made up of organic molecules and organic molecules the basis for the organic molecule is carbon so carbon is all over our solar system we don't have a problem with that but we have to but in order for life to form it has to form in the right place because it has to have the right environment we need uh, just the right temperature and so this has given rise to what's called habitable zones so around each star we can actually make a computer model of where would be the best place for life to form. And it turns out that the habitable zone in our solar system is somewhere between uh, Venus and just beyond Mars in that region. If you're too close to the sun, it's too hot. And if you're too far from the sun, it's too cold for life or like anything we've seen on Earth to, to exist. And so if we look for these habitable zones, it seems like we're in the right place. Uh, even though we're looking out beyond, you know, to Jupiter and Europa as exotic places, we really and truly believe that we have to focus on this region somewhere between Venus and Mars to look for evidence of life in our own solar system. But we're not stopping there. That's why we're so busy looking for planets beyond our solar system and looking for Earth-like planets in the habitable zones near those central stars. So I think we've sort of given up on our own solar system in a sense and now looking forward to other places in our own galaxy for these Earth-like planets and habitable zones. I think that's where we're going we're gonna to get lucky. Keeping my fingers. Well, well. What did you, how were you qualified to vote? How was I qualified to vote? Well, it turns out that first you have to be a member of the International Astronomical Union. In order to be a member, you need to have a PhD in astronomy and have published a, a few papers, right? You know, a few okay. is five or so. That's not a big requirement there. So, there are about 10,000 astronomers in the world who are members of this International Astronomical Union. Once you become a member, we're not paying dues or anything. We're just members. Anyway, so it turns out that at this particular meeting in Prague, you know, lots of astronomers, we meet every three years at what's called a general assembly. And so at the meeting, there were something like 2,500 people who attended the meeting out of the 10,000 worldwide who could have, because it's always in these exotic places, too expensive, nobody has enough money. Anyway, 10,000 down to 2,500, and we had this major discussion about Pluto at the very beginning of the meeting. In fact, usually, you know, like it's like business meetings. Before you have a major business meeting, you send out an agenda, people know what we're gonna talk about, and prior to this meeting in Prague, nobody, nobody, well, besides the executive, the president, the vice president, and a few select people knew that we were going to talk about Pluto. So we all happily go, you know, just saying, oh, we're going to talk science, you know. We're going to name a few more minor planets or something like that. We talk about the length of the day, those kinds of boring things. And we talk about specific topics in astronomy. Okay. Well, it turns out that the day after the meeting started, 
Someone we believe from the, the um, IAU executive leaked a news item about there being 12 planets. So of course, every astronomer in the world turned around and went, what? Where did that come from? Right? I mean, I, I was just busily, I hadn't even gone to the meeting yet. I was here, went to lunch with a bunch of friends and and they said, do you hear about this 12 planets? I mean, what do you, where did you get that from? I've never heard of 12 planets. It turns out that um, there had been a committee set up several months earlier to discuss the status of Pluto, right? I mean, Clyde Tombaugh had discovered Pluto in 1930. He died in 1997. We waited a respectable nine years before we decided we were going to book Pluto. So we were talking about it, and we didn't know that this committee had been set up to redefine the definition of a planet. So... So this goes on, all right, fine. Um, it turns out that they thought that it would be better to simply increase the number of planets to 12. Where did they get 12 from? Well, there was the nine planets, including Pluto. Then there was Eris, 10th planet. We bumped Ceres back up to planet. So Ceres has this rocky start, you know, first planet, then minor planet, then back up. Okay, so Ceres is number 11. And then what was the 12th one? The 12th one was Pluto's moon, Charon. Everybody's going, how did Pluto's moon get in there? What about our moon? Our moon is bigger. I mean, so everybody's getting all, all excited, but the, the problem was that the process had been violated. Right? We're supposed to have a discussion, a scientific discussion about it. So here we are all at the meeting, 2,500 people, and we're having to discuss this thing because the news media are all over the place saying, what do you think? What do you think, you know? And people get all excited, adults having hissy fits and so on. Anyway, we talked about it, talked about it, and finally we felt, okay, we need to have a proper discussion of this. It wouldn't be happening at that meeting. On the final day, I was one of the last people hanging around, and I was still attending a conference associated with the General Assembly. So I said, this is a nice kind of pomp and ceremony kind of thing. Let me just walk in. So there were about 400 people left. 10,000 worldwide, 2,500 at the meeting, about 400 people left at the meeting last day because, hey, you're going home, you're in Prague, you're going to go sightsee, right? Everybody's gone. I walk in, and as I'm walking in through the door, they hand us this little yellow ticket saying, you're going to vote on Pluto. And I go, what? <laughs> Nobody told me. So, so you get this ticket, and we go in there, we have another discussion. But the news media are there, and we vote on the definition of the planet, and then, of course, everything happens after that. So that's how I managed to be there, uh, among the distinguished 411 people in the world who had a yellow ticket. Right? That's right. So that's how it happened. I believe that everybody, all the members, should have had the opportunity to vote. Anyway. I think we'll have to end on that interesting note. And thank Mercedes Richards for being here today. Thank you.